you're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. On today's episode, we're talking about the 28th book in the series, the next to the last, almost the end, The Cat Who Dropped a Bombshell. Technically not the penultimate book, since we <laughs> do have a uh, another one between that. Yes, but not part this. of the series. But this is the penultimate in the official series. Yes. Now, when was this first published? 2006. Lillian Jackson Brown died when? 2011. 2011. So makes you wonder what was going on in that interim period uh, when the last book was published and... She was, you know, reaching the ages of 92 to 97. <laughs> well, yes, depending upon which source. But still, it, yeah, just in the sense that, that that was one of the longest gaps between books, or would have been. Well, it, the, the, the final book was originally supposed to be published in 2008. It was pushed back to 2009. Ah. And then there was radio silence and then she died. And they never really did a... Uh, Never did like a Robert Jordan where we had a ghost author take their, take the rest of the books. Or no, anything. apparently her husband didn't feel that anyone was up to the task. Oh, well, and he does uh, control the estate, or did at least uh, you know ten plus years ago. Understandable, completely. Uh, interesting. Who would be who would be in the uh, control of it now? I suppose. I don't know. Maybe um, the, maybe it's Coco and Yum Yum. <laughs> for all we know. <laughs> for all we know. I think. We but should- there is a Goodreads page. Up for it, and it's really fun to read through it and see the. Uh, oh, I can't wait for this ser- this final book! I'm so excited! I've read all the series. Oh, it's never happening, is it? Oh, it's never happening. Oh. It's really, it's funny and sad, and because it does seem like that she was yeah building up to something absolutely, with, especially with the last one where just there were so many strings that were being pulled, but nothing that really got finalized, and now. Yeah, we're nearing the end, and there's going to be some disappointment. Some disappointment, I think. Quite a bit. Um, It (laughs) should also be mentioned (laughs) that this book has a very different format from the 27 previous books. Um, Oh, now she decides to change it up. Well, her publisher did. Um, Oh. So it's, you know, it's it's not quite the cutesy pause. Now it's got little illustrations of a bomb going off, which is less cute. Um, Very so, much so. And it should be mentioned that I remember reading this as a library copy uh, when it first came out and deciding I didn't like it en- at enough at the time to buy it. Um, so <laughs> that'll tell you a little bit about how we're going into this. But without further ado, spoilers ahead. Let's jump in. All right. It's April in Pickaxe. The sesquicentennial is finally in the works after some mess ups of the date. And Quill is moving back to the barn <laughs> after a fairly uneventful winter in Indian Village. Quill and the cats help Pixie find a better name than the pickaxe sesquicentennial. Pickaxe now is much snappier <laughs> and means they don't have to copy Burr's Burr 200 from the previous year. Pickaxe now, it's like some news show. Yes. <laughs> but there will be heirloom auctions, three parades, and various other events oh throughout the throughout this uh, month-long celebration of pickaxe's history. <laughs> So after this, Quill gets an interesting request through Bart, the our, our favorite attorney, the nephew of some of the attendees of the Great Cheese Fiasco from the Cat Who <laughs> Said Cheese. Um, Harvey, uh, the, their nephew, Harvey Leftfield, wants to sketch the barn for his architecture portfolio for his college application. On the condition that he gives credit to the late Dennis Huff, Iris Cobb's son, and provides Quill with a copy of the drawings, Quill agrees. Uh, Bart also brings a photo of Harvey for some reason, but by the time he's done, Coco has stolen the picture. Something's up with Harvey that Coco thinks is worth noticing. Uh, interesting. Yes, indeed. 
Uh, meanwhile, Quill has decided to do a late great col- greats column for the Quill pen, listing some of the great Moose Countians from the last 150 years. And he turns to Lisa Compton for help. Wise man, because she and her husband Lyle are third generation native, so they actually have a pretty good handle on the last 150 years. Um, first up is Osmond Hasselrich, the former, the, the late attorney, and uh, followed by Agatha Burns, the Latin teacher who cel- helped celebrate Burr's 200th the year before. So she is, uh, she is herself a recent late great. <laughs> we also now learn that Quill hates birthdays, particularly for himself. Um, and he is pleased to learn that Polly has planned a quiet dinner at the Macintosh Inn with zero birthday shenanigans. This is a new trait of Quill. Indeed it is. Um, to be fair... The only other time we've really heard Quill talk about his birthday is, um, oh gosh, he was living in the gatehouse, the theater club, uh, the, the theater club surprised him with a cake and he kind of got mad at Fran Brody about how did you know it was my birthday? And she confessed that, uh, her father, the chief of police looked up <laughs> his driver's license. Uh-huh. And that is the only way people knew it was his birthday. So Him disliking birthdays, I think, was implied before, but this is the first time he outright says, I do not like being the subject of birthdays. So this wasn't completely out of left field. This is, there there is some precedence for this. Mm -hmm. Well, all right then. There really is. So after after the uh, non-birthday shenanigans, uh, Hixie and Dwight stop by. There's no word on their current dating status, though at one point they were rumored to be an item. Hmm. And they're here to discuss the parades. Uh, we have pickaxe, past, present, and future, which is a really cute idea for three parades. Yes. They want Quill to once again bring back the big burning, and he, of course, agrees. <laughs> um, and later, he gets a call from Maxine Pratt asking him to come to Burr because she has concerning news. Oh. Apparently, there's a couple of barflies at the hotel booze who are talking about stealing the historic pickaxe ahead of the pickaxe past parade. Oh. That was a new tongue twister. Pickaxe past parade. Pickaxe past parade. Pickaxe past parade. Anyway. That's, yeah, that's a good one. Gary overheard them, but thought they were joking. And Maxine wasn't so sure it was a joke, so she decided to tell Quill just in case, who then uh, dutifully reports the rumor to Andrew Brody. And Brody gets a good laugh over it, because apparently the City Hall pickaxe is a replica, so that he's, so as far as he's concerned, they can steal the fake all they want. Take, take it. It's fine. There's a, there's a couple others. Yes. Brody then also shares that Gil McMurchie, now there's a name we haven't heard in a couple of books. <laughs> no. Because Gil McMurchie, Pickaxe, Pickaxe's favorite plumber, is the master planner of the parades. He was wisely selected, it's, uh, it, it is said, by Hixie, who correctly told him that plumbers know everyone. All you have to do is pick the right assistants. Which well, there, that makes sense it when you think about it. It does. So Quill, being nosy, um, invites Gil to the barn to Shocked. hear all the gossip at caring and sharing, as we're reminded. <laughs> and while Gil is sharing all the details, he gets a call, predicted by Coco, who starts staring at Gil's phone a few minutes before it rings. Mm. And sadly, this phone call announces that Homer Tibbet has oh. finally passed away. It this was this was this was a long this time. This has been coming. a long time coming. It's it, he was his birthday was celebrated in one of the most recent yes, books at ninety eight. 98. Yes. Wow. So he'll also be joining Quill's celebration of late greats. Well, he had a very good long life. He did indeed. Uh, Meanwhile, Polly is facilitating the time for Harvey Ledfield to sketch the barn since his aunt is apparently a bit overawed by Quill. Harvey's parents... Overawed? Yes. Harvey's (laughs) parents died in a car crash, so his aunt and uncle, Doris and Nathan Ledfield, are his kind of honorary parents. Um, Polly also mentions that there's a new knitter in town, 
Barb Ogilvie hasn't been mentioned in this book or, you know, some of the previous books. But this knitter has lost her husband a few weeks after their wedding when he was killed by a falling tree, and now apparently she has second sight and predicts calamities. This should be an interesting detail to bring into play. Quill then returns to the barn, finds Coco playing with a wet ball of paper, which turns out to be the missing photo of Harvey, and this does not bode well. <laughs> we are then visited by Harvey and his fiancée, Clarissa, who uh, they arrive to sketch the barn, and Coco has a new trick. Dive bombing from the upper balconies of oh, the barn. Geez. Harvey, the victim of this attack, describes it like a bombshell, but soft. And there's the title. The um, cat ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yep. I've been able to say that in a while. Now, we're not really sure yet why Harvey is causing such a strong reaction in Coco, but he does keep his cool, heads back off to the art center where Clarissa was already at an art show to give him time to sketch. Um, however, he doesn't keep his cool as well when they return and Clarissa announces that Pickaxe would be just a charming place to live. His scowl tells us that there's something not quite right about this visit to his aunt and uncle. Turns out Clarissa has a prize-winning cat named Jerome, but Harvey doesn't care for cats. Hmm. This might explain why she and Weatherby Good Joe, uh, Joe Bunker, get along <laughs> smashingly at dinner at the Nutcracker Inn with brief appearances by Bushy to photograph Harvey so Quill can replace the destroyed photo. And so they're at this dinner. Uh, Harvey is uh, a bit of a pill. He tells about Coco's aerial attack and everyone at the table is laughing except for Harvey. <laughs> Clarissa wishes they could stay so and so apparently does Weatherby but that's more of an age difference than I'm really comfortable with because let's remind it let's uh let's take a note she's still in college and I don't care how cute her blonde curls are but Weatherby's been making a habit of dating younger women because previous to this uh, you know he didn't date much in the early in his early appearances because he was supposed to have a girl in horseradish that he would go up to see <laughs> Um, well, that's apparently not uh, gone by the wayside. or Apparently. Um, it, he says something about it very briefly, but yeah, basically she's gone by the wayside. Uh, the Oof. previous book he took, um, he, he, he took Dundee's valet, um, Peggy, to dinner at the Palomino Paddock. Oh. Um, so, and now he's moving on to Clarissa. It's like, okay, dude, well, you have a thing for younger women, and a, that's just a little bit creepy. Yeah, Picasso, Tony Randall situation or something going yeah. on. Yeah. So Harvey, after this lovely dinner, seems very eager to leave after they have their final Sunday dinner with his aunt and uncle. And then Polly reveals a little bit of gossip. Apparently, though Harvey and Clarissa are supposed to be engaged, Clarissa tells Doris that Harvey never bought her an engagement ring. So she gives him one of her rings and insists that he proposes properly. Hmm. That's a hesitant groom who wants to leave. Huh. Um, and wonder what he's hiding. So this is what Quill writes in his journal. And so we, as the readers, now wonder. We do indeed. Indeed. All right. So the first, so the next, the next thing we're at is the first very is the very first pickaxe parade, which is pickaxe. Then this goes <laughs> off without a hitch, few laughs, and then Quill and Polly head back to the barn for lunch, catered by Celia, which is an interesting mix of roast beef sandwiches and papaya and avocado salad. Oh wow! Pickaxe is getting fancy. Very fancy. Oh, and of course, it should be mentioned: dessert is Iris Cobb's lemon bars. Of course. Yes, they are delicious. Now, during this lunch, Polly reports that the clairvoyant knitter has predicted violence during pickaxe now, a shooting and poisoning. Quill quips that the poisoning might be unintentional. I mean, all those family reunions, all that potato salad. Who knows what could happen? <laughs> it could just be a, a recipe for some sort of conflict with everyone being in close quarters. Yes. Well, you know, when you when you throw a little bit of murder into the mix. <laughs> just a dash. <laughs> just a sprinkling. <laughs> Season it with a little with a little bit of ill will. 
And the next day, Bart stops by the barn so Quill can give him the new photos that Bushy took and apologize for Coco destroying the old. <laughs> and then Bart reports that the Leadfields have canceled their regular appointments with his office through one of their secretaries. Apparently, they have two, um, one for financial and others to manage their various collections. Hmm. And they've canceled because they're not feeling well. Oh. Now, considering the knitter's predictions, is this the poisoning we foresaw? she foresaw? Coco gives a yow when Quill jokes about a new strain of pollen imported from outer space. Although that may be because his snack is behind schedule. But it's not his death howl. Not his death howl. Just a, just a good solid yow. Just a good... <laughs> hungry. Yes. Or it might be a strain of pollen from outer space. Who knows? Space pollen. The, <laughs> the worst kind. Yes. Um, we get a limerick in honor of the Siamese. <laughs> not his best work, but still cute. I live with a pair of Siamese who think they can do what they please. They subsist on steak and truffles and cake and lobsters and six kind of cheese. <laughs> Every time with these limericks, I just hear Carl Castle's voice in my head. <laughs> As he's, you know, writing limericks to the cats over their breakfast, he gets a call from Polly because she's had a letter from Clarissa who tells Polly that, that Clarissa has broken off her engagement with Harvey after he said she'd have to get rid of her cat. But they she pl- They only just now got to that discussion? Yeah. Apparently. That's a, um, a while. She, however, plans to stay in touch with the older Leadfields and tells Polly that she thinks they like her better than Harvey. Not hard, considering what a pill he was during the visit. No. Um, a further chat with Maggie Sprinkle reveals that Harvey's father was the black sheep of the Leadfield family. So while his, while his death was a tragedy, it was also a relief that he couldn't embarrass them anymore. Huh. Um, Harvey also apparently visited Nathan and Doris before his, uh, shortly after his parents' death. And brought a male friend this time, who they found, of course, charming. Um, Harvey was a disappointment and apparently was only there trying to convince them to invest in a swanky ski lodge that he wants to open. Mm. No dice then. And so he's now back. Their theory was that he was back again to try with his fiance. (laughs) Fake, fake, fake. Um, After this, Gil stops by to chat about the second parade and the mishap with the original slogan of everything's coming up roses. Someone reminded them that roses have thorns, and since they were planning to throw the roses oh, from the vehicles, oh, not their best idea. No. But then, no, no, no. they realized that peonies are everywhere in pickaxe. There's even a peony club, because of course there is. It's pickaxe. It's pickaxe. Um, so <laughs> they realized that uh, everything's coming up peonies would be uh, considerably cheaper and less dangerous. That's a bit of a mouthful to say, though, syllable-wise. Uh, everything's coming up peonies? Just a, seems like a bit a bit much. Yeah. It's only one more syllable than rose, but st- it's roses, but still. Mm-hmm. Peonies, it just sounds much more. It doesn't sound, it doesn't go as trippingly off it's, the top. Yes, it, it doesn't just kind of smack around and roll around in there like it would normally with everything's coming up roses. Everything's coming up peonies. Everything's yes. coming up daffodils. It just, one, one of them is better than the other. It's true. So... Um, taking a tangent, Gilthan mentions three generations of plumbers and that he remembers the Leadfields in their Purple Point mansion uh, very well. It's called the Old Man's. And he remembers <laughs> them so well because they always paid their bill on time and sent their plumber on a, a nice gift at Christmas. Well, that's good. It is. Um, then uh, Quill's column on the Burr Latin teacher, Agatha Burns, is published and her niece sends him one of Agatha's prized books, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne's Mosses from the Old Manse. Ding, connection. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Coco then immediately sits on the book, so it's approved and and plot important. (laughs) Um, Then, of course, Thornton Haggis stops by for no real reason to remind us about the knitter's prediction of shooting and poisonings. 
Just in case we forgot. Just in case we forgot. You know, never know. All right. Those so, crafty knitters, they, you know, with the needles, you never know. Yes. It's then announced that Clarissa, who was in journalism school, has decided to move to Pickaxe and start at the something. Uh, to welcome her to town, Weatherby throws a pizza party for her. He likes to throw pizza parties. This happens a lot. <laughs> um, and he asks Quill to pick her up and provide a limerick for the occasion. Quill agrees as long as Weatherby plays kitten on the keys as fast as he can. Weatherby has a really interesting commentary that when somebody says, why aren't you on the why aren't you on the public stage? And he said, I'm really not good enough. But I figured that if I couldn't necessarily be the best, I could be the fastest. Huh. So, he, you know, he's not the greatest piano player in the world, but he covers it up by playing incredibly fast and accurately. Huh. So it's fun. That's no, it's an interesting way of doing it. Absolutely. Um, but first, before we can go to the pizza party, uh, Quill has to attend the Ogilvy Fugtree family reunion. Fugtree. Yes. It's a nice check in with Mitch and Christy, whom we've known since the cat who talks to ghosts. They're still selling goat cheese. They have young twins that are a credit to the community. And uh, everything's going great for the Ogilvy Fugtree family. Um, Quill, um, Quill leaves um, when uh, hunters are heading off to uh, hunt rabbits in the woods for Haas and Pfeffer. Um, but the general impression he gets is of a just lovely day. The heirloom auction is coming up, and Quill mentions that he was going to try and donate Liz Hart's Twistlewig uh, rocker from the cat who said cheese. <laughs> Uh, but apparently he tried to donate it to a previous auction and had to buy it back when Coco went on a hunger strike. Oh, so now it lives in the cat's apartment at the barn. Um, Yum Yum apparently doesn't care for it, but Coco loves it. Uh, <laughs> but as Quill's getting ready to, ready to submit his copy on the family reunion, he gets a message from Mitch. There's big trouble. Can't print anything about the reunion. And Coco sounds his death. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So it turns out, one of the rabbit hunters from the reunion has gone missing. Oh, boy. Quill ungenerously assumes that he was shot by another hunter. And meanwhile, Clarissa stops by the bookstore to say hi to Polly and mentions she's been trying to return Doris's diamond ring, but can only speak with the housekeeper. So something is also strange there. But Quill is off to do another show to the Big Burning, so he doesn't think about it too much. He has a show to do. He has a show to do. <laughs> he can't focus on so, anything else right now. Later... It's a, uh, later he picks up Clarissa to go to the pizza party, and there's a sly little exchange about gray cats being called blue, so Quill compliments Clarissa on her gray outfit, which is obviously blue. Um, okay. Sure. Um, it's a nice party, although Clarissa asks if Roger McGilvery is married. Uh, yeah, Roger? with three kids. Um, not sure if this was just to remind us that Roger, and by extension Sharon and the kids, still exist. Or if Roger was flirting with Carissa, or Carissa just has really bad observational skills because his wedding ring has been mentioned more than once, so I assume he still wears one. A little bit of everything, maybe. Who knows? It's possible. Um, you know, to be fair, we did eventually learn the name, uh, the names of the Bamba offspring, the three kids, at one point. Um, we've never actually learned the names of the kid of the McGovery kids. Really? Nope. Never got mentioned. Hmm. It's just that Sharon's babysitting or Roger's babysitting or Mildred's babysitting. And that is all we know. Babysitting is always something that... It's a, it's a bad description it's of, a bad you know, parenting. Yes, it's parenting, or I much prefer what we say about each other whenever we are watching our daughter is, oh, we're on Essie duty. Yes. Prefer that. that that's a better... <laughs> and that's full-time duty. <laughs> Some days more than others. Oh, Yes. Anyway, so that little side exchange, side exchange aside, um, the next day, Mitch drops by the barn to give Quill the inside scoop on the rabbit hunters and to deliver some goat cheese for him and the cats uh, because he 
doesn't I? Because that's why Mitch is always a welcome character. He comes bearing cheese. <laughs> um, so the two rabbit hunters, the one of which who mi- went missing, were Ogilvy cousins, Theo and Max from Texas, who recently uh, jointly inherited their uncle's vast wealth since the rest of the family already has all the money they'll need. <laughs> Lots to unpack there. And it is noted that the men do not get along all that well. Uh, but anyway, Theo is now dead. Max is the prime suspect, although he claims he never saw his cousin after they split up. But he heard a lot of gunfire from Theo's direction. Hmm. Coco definitely has thoughts on this, though, because he drops on the balcony, this time next to Mitch on the sofa, startling both men, and Mitch takes this as his cue to exit. I would also <laughs> like to point out that this is why that you, this is how you can tell he likes you, Mitch. He didn't land on your head like he did to Harvey. Land on you he next to you. He landed next to you. Scared you, but he didn't land on you. <laughs> Wasn't a power bomb. He was just... Yeah. He make was just a, there to startle you. Now. Make a point. So likely that's the knitter's prediction of a shooting, and we can take an educated guess who the poisoner and poisoned might be. Uh, the social lead field suddenly canceling all their appointments and only their housekeepers talking? Something's not right there. Hmm. Uh, but back to Clarissa's triumphant entry into Moose County society. <laughs> Quill takes her to the grist mill and she and Liz Harder immediate besties, although then Cl- Cl- Clarissa's next question is if Derek is married. Honey, get your brain Derek, out. Derek, uh... They're not married. They're just, they've just been in a long-term relationship. No, still, exactly. But, Poor uh, dear, you know, dear old Buzz has been committed. He's, he reminds me of Buzz from Psych. Ah. He's very, you know, he's very, he's very well-meaning, but he's kind of dim-witted. Got it. Got it. It's always a delight when you see him show up, but it's always just, oh, you are, you are so, you're no, so. No, no. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I needed more background information on that one because we haven't, we haven't seen Derek. We have not. No, you're right. Yeah. Ever since the gristmill opened, um, you know, he's been living the high, the high, the high and happy life with the. the yeah, happy life, maybe. Well, the high life, because, you know, remember, Liz is uh, independently wealthy. Uh, yes, that's true. I did forget so, about it. Either way. Anyway, let's... Clarissa then rudely asks if Derek is married, is told that he and Liz are uh, are a couple who share a condo at Indian Village. Um, the pauses are Quill's, not mine. Um, <laughs> after dinner, she then tells Quill that she's left a note for him, which re- then reveals to no one's surprise that she and Harvey were never really engaged. She just was part of a scam to get money for a ski lodge, and when it failed, they quote-unquote broke up. But she's so glad to be in pickaxe and is enjoying her new career in life. That's nice, but we, why are you here? Um, anyway. <laughs> who are you? Who are you? Why are you here? Um, so in order to get the ring back to Doris, as she's hoping to do, Quill then enlists Maggie Sprinkle, who, of course, knows Norris, Doris and Nathan very well. Um, she assumes that they're suffering from allergies and comments that they would think it's rude to come to the phone with sniffles. Um, it's a good connection. When Quill drops off his latest column, Clarissa mentions that a friend from school is coming to pickaxe just for this cat auction that they're doing. Um, <laughs> and then there's an odd dig at the West Coast. He asks if her friend has a name because he's heard it's getting so crowded. California had to resort to numbers, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, of course. Apparently, though, said friend is writing crime stories and is looking for material. So ah. this should be an interesting uh, dump into the mix. Eventually, through Dr. Diane Lanspeak, who, uh, quote-unquote, adopted the Leadfields as a child uh, and now provides them with house calls, the ring is returned and then sent back to Clarissa as a gift. How lovely. Very good. That's very lovely. Doris's note says she'll think of her as the daughter they never had. You met her for a weekend. Um, <laughs> just gonna say. Well, Baloo only knew Mowgli for one day. True. And he was his own son. Something like that. So, who knows? Sure. Time is um, a flat circle. 
Exactly. So meanwhile, Dr. Diane is now concerned about these allergies because they've gotten to an infectious point and she wants to send them to a lockmaster specialist along with recommending an environmental specialist investigate the house for mold or other irritants because their symptoms are not necessarily lining up with allergies. Hmm. It's entirely possible that something else is going on here. Oh, well, we did have a promise of poisoning. We did indeed. So, hmm. Time moves on. Quill's second book, by the way, has come out. Uh, his work on Hibbard House, the uh, <laughs> wooden monstrosity that burned down at the end of the last book. Uh, Clarissa's first feature articles come out. Her writing style is debated in the coffee shops. They're kind of meh about it. They don't see why you had to get somebody from Indiana up here to, to write something perfectly serviceable. Um, <laughs> don't be bringing them Hoosiers in here. Exactly. Uh, the heirloom auction goes on raising money for the senior center to come with some items going in excess of $10,000. Uh, there's also apparently a crowd warm-up where Quill and Weatherby Good bid against each other for a clearly not valuable item. Just, just because to, they could. Just because they could and to make a nice donation. <laughs> it's very sweet. Um, this is supposed to be the warm-up for the cat auction the following weekend, with both auctions being hosted by our favorite auctioneer, Foxy Fred. Ah, yes. Except tragedy strikes. <sighs> After the heirloom auction... Foxy Fred falls out of a tree. He was up there cutting a worm-infested branch, and he breaks his back. Oh, no. So, therefore, Quill must be the auctioneer for the cat auction because no one else can do it. Obviously so says, not. So says Maggie Sprinkle. <laughs> um, Coco agrees that this is appropriate and kind of soothes Quill's fears by staring at his forehead until he falls asleep. <laughs> That's it's nothing more relaxing than a cat just staring, staring at, at your forehead. Intently. Yes. <laughs> Um, the next morning, Quill rehearses the auction with all 40 kittens. Um, they troubleshoot some last-minute issues. And we also learn that Lenny Inchpot is starting the county's first food truck from Lois's Luncheonette, and it will debut for the kitten auction. Go, Lenny! That is wonderful. That is great news. Unfortunately, there's less great news that the weather is starting to lean towards predicting a northern hurricane. Northern Hurricane? Yes, which is scheduled to sit the same day as the final parade. Oh, Everything's no. coming up. <laughs> um, Ethel Merman spinning in her grave somewhere. <laughs> but there's no time to dwell, unfortunately. Kittens must be auctioned off. And with the kitten auction, they raise over $20,000 for the animal Priorities, shelter. people. Yes. $20,000, though, raised for the animal shelter. That is amazing. 40 kittens find home. Clarissa's friend, whose name is Vicky, we learn, wins a kitten and jets off, leaving Quill a very strange monogram wrote, which I must point out, he does not read at first. Afterwards, Brody then stops by the barn, claims that the rabbit hunter was shot by accident, not a crime as predicted by the knitter. That's debatable. There was a death howl from Coco. So, so therefore, they just it may, was, may not have found it out. Yeah, there was malicious intent. But as they're sitting there discussing this, there are loud booms that sound from the direction of Main Street. After a very quiet summer, it turns out that the vandals are back with a vengeance and they have bombed the flower boxes at City Hall. What? That escalated quickly. That was good. Yeah. Wow. So it turned, but it should be pointed Jeez. out that Brody and Quill were. I mean, that got out of hand real fast. Yeah. Brody and Quill, though, were alerted to something being not right because Coco was staring out the window and towards the eventual bombing for a full half hour before the bombs actually went off. Huh. Go, Coco. Coco is a cat of many premonition. Yes. Um, that, uh, and then the following morning after the bombing, Quill packs up the cats, weatherproofs the barn for a short trip to Indian Village after being warned by Joe Bunker that the storm will likely knock out the power and turn his dirt roads to absolute muck, completely yeah. tracking him, trapping him and the cats for an unspecified amount of time. 
Um, moving to Indian Village, they have generators, they have paved roads. It's just a better place to be for this. Better to hunker down there. Most everyone weathers the storm very well. Um, you're in a building with six cats, but so everyone's nervous. Um, but the very first news reports after the storm report the death of Doris Ledfield from a respiratory infection. Oh. And it turns out Nathan is critically ill himself. And then there is a terrible accident at the aptly named Bloody Creek Bridge where we've lost several other people. Oh, no. And it's Liz Hart. Oh. But she's kind of forgotten because a few pages later, Nathan dies and Quill finally reads Vicky's letter, prompting an urgent call to Bart about its contents. Because it turns out that Vicky, the future mystery writer, gave Harvey Ledfield an idea to plant toxic mold in the air ducts of the Ledfield mansion so that the spores would dissipate after he and Clarissa left. It's enough to arrest, uh, to arrest Harvey on the suspicion of foul play, according to Bart. And the county is uniformly shocked by the Leadfield's death and Harvey's arrest. But poor Liz Hart is almost completely forgotten. And Carol Landspeak seems to be the only one who's really upset about Liz's death. Mm-hmm. Except in the case of the gristmill, since apparently her brothers want to sell it and Lockmaster investors are sniffing around. And so Carol turns to Quill and begs, who better to buy and keep it local than the K-Fund? He tells Carol to apply. He's sure I'm sure it will stay in the community, which Liz would have appreciated. Yes. And that was why she did it. Meanwhile, it turns out that the Leadfield Fortune will start a local music school under the Muslim Chorale conductor Uncle Louis McLeod in memoriam to the couple's apparently outstanding musical talents. Wonderful. And it should be mentioned, what is their first production? Cats. Uh. <laughs> they wanted to, use the re- to reuse the costumes from the Kit Kat review. Because they are so similar. Sure. Um, That's how you can get Rum Tum Tugger and Mungo Jerry and but, Rumples and Skimbles Shanks and all these things. God, this mute God Cats is such a weird show. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> anyway, um, but Coco's still dropping like a bombshell onto the sofa, so all is not quite solved. Oh, no. But apparently his bombshell is the final dispersal of the Leadfield will. They're bequeathing additional multi-million dollar music centers to any city with a population of one million or more in... America. Did they write this will in the 1970s? So that's okay. That's a lot of cities. It's huge. How the rich is this family? Apparently very. Jeez. Um, somebody did point out at some point in the book that, you know, they are third generation. They've had, and they got lucky. So they didn't lose their money in the crash. They've, they've had a century and a half to invest and build up a, a rather massive fortune. Um, so the locals are a little annoyed that the money isn't all staying local. And that's how it ends. Huh? We never do find out what happens to the, oh yeah, that's where it ends. We never find out what happened to the Ogilvy cousins. Maybe it really was an accident, but considering that Coco was howling for foul play, I'm betting one of the cousins shot the other. And then we realized that, oh dear, we don't have time to go solve two murders in one book. Well, we need to wrap this up in a tight 15. So let's go. Yep. That's and it's also possible that Lillian Jackson Brown just forgot that storyline and hoped we would too. And Coco's just predicting financial windfalls now. Um, <laughs> Turned into Jim Cramer. Yeah. But we also know nothing more about the bombing. Why the window boxes? But I mean, maybe that's a story for next time. We just that, oh, window. the vandals are back. And that's, and the curtain falls. And the curtain falls. This, Very this, this is interesting. So... Now, 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 you said the format for this one was different than the other ones. What was so different about uh, this one? Because it didn't seem like there was anything that was uh, different from your synopsis, from your summary. No, the format, when I say the format, I mean the chapter formatting. Okay. Um, 
the uh, the fonts are bigger. There's much bigger spaces, and then there's a page between every chapter. So they're clearly trying to, um, fi- they're clearly clearly trying to make it Pat look it like out. a normal size book, but they're padding it out. So we're missing about maybe 10, we're missing 10% about you know a third so? of the book. Jeez. I'd say because um, that's about what we're missing story wise. This is. I'm getting flashbacks to the final season of Game of Thrones with this, where it starts mm-hmm. off just so promising, but then, yep. Hopefully, she's not going to forget about the Iron Fleet, just like Danny did. Anyway, uh, yes, you said, there's, you said that there is a there, there's an imaginary phone call, is what I'm reading here. Yes, indeed. The now, after, explain more about this, please. After the end of the book, there's an addendum. This is an imaginary phone call written between Lillian Jackson Braun and Quill. <laughs> because when you don't think anyone is good enough to interview you, except yourself, in the guise of your ideal reporter. Lillian Jackson Braun famously hated being interviewed because she never thought anybody did a very good job, mm-hmm. which is why she wrote Quill as kind of her ideal interviewer. So, of course, when she has to be interviewed, she wants to be interviewed by the best. By, by so Quiller and himself. And within this, we get some of the basic information we've already heard. You know, what did you do? You worked on the Detroit Free Press and blah, blah, blah. But we get a crucial story. The origin of her very first Siamese, who was, of course, named Coco, who was murdered by a cat-hating neighbor. Oh, God. The kitten was thrown from a 10th story window. Oh, God. And to deal with her grief, she created the Cat Who characters as short stories, including one where the cat-hating neighbor takes the fall. This is in The Cat Who Had 14 Tales. I remember reading this one. Good. Um, The editor was reading these, encouraged her to turn them into full books, and the rest is history, which I think is a very fitting tribute to a loved pet that died too soon. No, absolutely. That's, oh, that's, God, some people. (laughs) Some people. That's just, uh, good. I'm glad that there is the version of it where it's the uh, neighbor who gets thrown out. Yep. They can just keep falling. Yeah, there's a line about he did not fall silently, if I'm remembering the story correctly. Good. Now, speaking of cats, we're jumping right into that. Uh... What would be the paw rating you give to this, the penultimate of the main series? Indeed. Two and a half paws is what I give this. That's still pretty solid. It, it's solid. There's there's still so much good stuff that's in here, and then it just doesn't stick the landing. Uh, it's a giant mismatch of ideas that hinted a decent mystery, but the solutions are far-fetched or ignored in the case of the Ogilvy cousins. Harvey is a paper-thin villain. And Clarissa's sudden integration into pickaxe is a truly weird flex, as is her mystery friend with the monogram stationery. Mm. Um, I am also really, really saddened by the lack of fanfare attached to the death of Liz Hart. She's been a driving background character since her first appearance in The Cat Who Came to Breakfast. Right. She has been in this series for quite some time. And I I don't necessarily mind that she died because, granted, they haven't done much with her. Um, so it, it feels like this is the culling of the field, but, but still, but to give her no fanfare and have her death be completely lost in the Leadfield's financial donation. Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah. That seemed very throwaway. It, it, it's, and, and that's just not, she deserves better. I agree. She, she just deserves better. Nope. I agree. I agree. Well, yes. with that, thank you so much for listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast. Uh, it should be noted we're going to take a slight tangent for our next episode and read a spoof. Um, around the time this book was published, humorist Robert Kaplow, the author of Me and Orson Welles, published a satirical volume of the series complete with fake alternative series titles. Um, it should be noted the, inestima- the inestimable Susan Stamberg of NPR's All Things Considered reviewed the book and called it mercifully short. 
This may be a slightly painful read, but, you know, at least he spells her name correctly. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert, we've actually already recorded that episode. Oh, boy. Record that episode. Enjoy uh, listening to that one, my friends. It's a short one, but wow, it is... I, I will say it, it's calling it a spoof is very generous. Yes. So join us next time for the cat who killed Lillian Jackson Braun, a parody. I'm Susan Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry. And until next time, happy sleuthing. And stay nosy, my friends. Stay nosy.